0: My name is Leah Sofer, and you're listening to the University of Chicago Public Policy Podcast.
1: I have therefore considered it essential to relieve General MacArthur so that there would be no doubt or confusion as to the real purpose and aim of our policy. On my orders, the United States military has begun strikes against Al-Qaeda terrorist training camps. We must guard against acquisition of unwarranted influence by the military-industrial complex. U.S. warships and planes launched the opening salvo of Operation Iraqi Freedom. After years of devastating cuts, we're now rebuilding our military like we never have before.
2: Hello and welcome back to another episode of Thank You for Your Service, a hard look at American civil military affairs from the University of Chicago Public Policy Podcasts. I'm Nick Paraiso. And I'm Thomas Krasnation. Today we're excited to bring you an interview we recorded a few weeks ago with retired U.S. Army General Stanley McChrystal. General McChrystal graduated from the U.S. Military Academy at West Point in 1976, and he served until 2010. In 2009, President Barack Obama appointed General McChrystal to lead the International Security Assistance Force, commanding all U.S. and NATO troops in Afghanistan. He served in this role for a little over a year before an article was published in Rolling Stone magazine that portrayed General McChrystal and his team as disrespectful of senior Obama administration officials. President Obama immediately relieved him of command, and General McChrystal retired from the army. Since then, he has taught courses at Yale University and started a consulting group. He has written several best-selling books on leadership, including his latest, Leaders, Myth and Reality. And he's been in the news recently for his criticism of the current presidential administration.
0: Just one quick note before we get started with the interview. In this interview, you'll hear the word joint a bunch of times, as in the Joint Staff and Joint Special Operations Command. In the U.S. military, the word joint refers to the integrated and cooperative efforts of multiple different military branches, like the Army, the Navy, and the Air Force. Before he became the International Security Assistance Force Commander, General McChrystal famously commanded Joint Special Operations Command, which consists of several thousand troops from different military branches' elite special operations units, such as the Navy SEALs and the Army's Green Berets. At two other times in his career, General McChrystal worked for the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, helping the military branches work together. In the first part of this interview, we talked to General McChrystal about
2: his time on the Joint Staff at the Pentagon. During the period just prior to the US invasion of Iraq in 2003, and some of the things he saw as failures in cooperation between civilian
0: and military policymakers.
2: But we'll get to that later. Here's the interview.
0: General Stanley McChrystal, thank you so much for joining us on Thank You for Your Service. We really appreciate you taking the time.
1: Well, it's my pleasure.
0: We've been really excited for this interview for a while, not
2: just because you're a near legendary Army general, but because also in retirement, you've really established yourself as a thoughtful scholar. Over the past few years, you've published best-selling books and have become well known as a writer on history and leadership. What would you say has-
1: Near legendary means almost dead.
2: (laughs) (laughs) What would you say has most surprised you about the transition from the military to a more academic role?
1: Yeah, it- Separate from the academic, sort of the commercial or non-military world, it's how similar they are. You know, we have uniforms, we have ranks in the military, and we perceive the military and the civilian world as being dramatically different. And actually, it's all people. So the similarities were the big surprise for me.
0: So during your career, you were well-known within the Army as a combat commander, especially of Joint Special Operations Command. But you also served in some policymaking roles at the Pentagon. And we were wondering if you could talk a little bit about your time on the joint staff during the lead up to the Iraq war and what you observed about the civil military interaction at that time with regards to war policy making.
1: Yeah, no, that's great. Um, I entered the joint staff uh, when I left Afghanistan in the late summer of 2002. And that was my first tour in the Pentagon. So I had no experience at that level uh, before arriving and that was clearly a disadvantage for me. I had to learn how the Joint Staff worked, and I also had to learn the whole culture of the Pentagon, how that worked as well. A few of the things that I noticed at the very beginning. First, the Joint Staff is a superb collection of military professionals. There had been a period, a couple of decades before, when in fact some of the staffs, like Joint Staffs, didn't get the best people. But the goldwater nichols Act in 1986 changed that dramatically. So, in fact, the Joint Staff is this collection of extraordinary talent. Now, having said that, though, the Pentagon's a funny place. You have the OSD staff, or the staff of the Secretary of Defense, and they are really responsible for the lead in policymaking. The Joint Staff, a lot of people don't understand, is involved in coordination of execution through the different military services and through the combatant commanders. And the roles between those two staffs are not always clear. And then you layer on top of that just personalities and whatnot. I arrived during the the tenure of Donald Rumsfeld. And a few of the things I noticed first was there really wasn't a very good relationship between the military leadership and Secretary Rumsfeld and the people around him. Part of it was Secretary Rumsfeld's style You know, he had a sometimes a difficult style. Sometimes it was the people around him. And part of it was the military as well. I remember there were things that I saw Secretary Rumsfeld do in the way he operated that I thought hindered conversation between the military, effective interaction between the military. And I would say that I arrived in that late summer of 2002, and that was just when planning for the invasion of Iraq had gotten serious. And... I didn't think it was very effective. I didn't think there was an ongoing dialogue between senior military and senior Department of Defense or, or other parts of the government about whether we should do this. There was an awful lot of talk about the mechanics of it, moving this, there, or you know, troops or or things. But I don't ever remember the kinds of discussions where that said, why would we do this? if we do this, what will be the second and third order effects and how will we deal with those? So I actually think it was a failure of policymaking, effective policy making, because those dialogues in my perception didn't occur to the depth that they needed to. And clearly what bore out in uh, Iraq shows that we didn't get deep enough into uh, some of those things. At the same time, You can't point the finger one way or another here, because I think the military is at least as responsible as uh, the civilian side was. There's one anecdote I'd tell you. At one point, Secretary Rumsfeld is talking about how the invasion would be conducted, the the flow of forces. And the military leadership said, OK, we will flow according to an existing operational plan and a TIPFID, time-phase deployment document, which has a list of, The sequence in which you deploy forces, very complex documents that get everything to the right port and then to the right onto the right shipping and whatnot. And the military said, "Okay, Secretary Rumsfeld, if you want to do this, it's a binary decision. You basically say, go, no, go. And then we execute this plan. And the secretary said, no, I don't want to do that. That's not the force package I want to send. I want to send a completely different force package in a completely different sequence. And the military, and I was in some of the closed door, had a very difficult time with that. Senior leaders said, well, it's too complex to try to rejigger things. If we don't stick with the plan, we'll screw it all up. And then there'd be all the military would link arms and say, OK, we're going to go in and tell Secretary Rumsfeld, I'm sorry, but this is what you have to do. They would do that. And he would say, I'm sorry, that's not what I'm going to do go away, come back with a new plan. And this went on for several weeks until finally, you know, he sort of stuffed them on the deal. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he turned out to be right. He turned out the military could change it. They could send things in different order. They could be that adaptable when he forced them to be. And that was one of those cases where you had two pretty strong cultures fighting, both thinking they were right. But at the end of the day, the outcome I think people learned from it. But, but it just shows that inside that building, things are sometimes difficult.
2: Right. So kind of the classic theory of civil-military relations laid out by Samuel Huntington is that the military and civilian policy officials, they live in these separate spheres, that the politicians set strategic objectives and then the military carries them out. Would you say, therefore, that based on your experience, that Huntingtonian framework is incomplete?
1: Yeah, that's that's the right direction, because when Sam Huntington wrote that, I remember he described the military as technicians, you know, that the policymaker would say we want a bicycle and the military would go build the bicycle Mm -hmm. and and whatnot. But the reality is that's not realistic in what I think uh, how things need to work, because the military have an awful. There's a bleed over. I mean, there's huge overlap between politics and military operation, because Each affects the other so much so that if the military people sort of stay in a hermetically sealed tube and say, you decide what you want and then we'll execute it is unrealistic because the act of executing military operations changes things on the ground It affects policy. It's just that way. And similarly, policy affects military operations in the execution. So it's not it's not a case of where you have policy, policy, decision, stop turn it over to the military, military, and then stop, turn it back to the policymakers. It is intertwined the entire time, and it must be. That means that military leaders necessarily have to understand and they need to be adept at dealing to an appropriate level in that policymaking. I mean, there's, this is art here. Um, this is military. Look at George C. Marshall, people like that. They developed a sense for how much they should be involved there. And then people like, well, he was also Commander-in-Chief, but uh, Franklin Roosevelt or Abraham Lincoln, how much say they should get involved in actually directing military operations. So it's this is one of these things. It's not black and white. It's gray, and it necessarily must be.
0: So about seven years after the U.S. first committed troops to the war in Afghanistan, you took command of the troops there, the International Security Assistance Force. We were wondering if you could talk a little bit about the situation you found when you first arrived in Afghanistan.
1: Yeah, um, I had been there first as the Chief of Staff for JTF 180 in 2002. And then because Joint Special Operations Command, my command in that had been spread across the region, I'd spent part of every year between 2002 and 2009 in Afghanistan, so I had a fair amount of familiarity, but clearly when I came in as the ISAF commander, that's a different role, I had to take on a a different perspective. What I found was interesting and disappointing. The first was, this was about eight years in, I got there in June 2009, and the level of activity had not produced much real change, meaning We had talked at the beginning after uh, the fall of 2001 about working on the Afghan court system, the Afghan military, uh, the Afghan police, and different nations had said they'd take the lead to do that, and almost nothing had been done. So in reality, the military wasn't really out of the starting gates, neither were the courts, neither were the police. The Afghan people who had great high hopes when we first got there in 2001 with the fall of the Taliban regime, we're now disappointed almost to the point of cynicism that says, you know, you've had Western troops here, you've had a certain amount of fighting. It's not gotten better materially. I mean, some things had, there were kids in school and all, but the reality was the improvements were much less than their hopes and expectations had been. So there was a crisis in that. And there was a crisis in competence because they didn't think that we were going to stay or that we had proven that we could produce the kind of outcome that we needed. When you looked at the the NATO effort, one of the first things that struck me was the lack of consistency. I showed up and met with uh, President Karzai and I was the 10th ISAF commander. So nine before me had been there and he rightfully could look at me and say, how long are you gonna be here and look at his watch? Um, And so there's every reason to think we don't take it seriously. the the sense of professionalism on the American side, but but really the whole ISAF thing, was kind of junior varsity. And it's not because it was bad people, but not only had more troops and more equipment and more technology gone to the fight in Iraq, which had been much more challenging for, for many years, everything that went to Afghanistan was less or a little backwards. So our communication structure, our force structure. And even in the staff, the ISAF staff, it was very heavily individual augmentees. And they were good people, but it wasn't units and it wasn't, it wasn't the first straight. And so when you got there, it wasn't surprising that they were able to produce less with less. You know, it just you're going to get a you know a less effective outcome. So We needed to really address that if you were going to get serious and try to turn things around.
2: We pick up the story in the fall of 2009, a few months after General McChrystal had taken command of the troops in Afghanistan. President Obama had just been elected in a campaign in which he committed to reducing military involvement around the world. But he soon came under a lot of pressure to send more troops there and many observers concluded that the Department of Defense and its generals were intentionally orchestrating that pressure. A set of recommendations by General McChrystal's team was leaked to Bob Woodward, who reported the military's request for a troop increase in the Washington Post under the headline, McChrystal, more forces or mission failure? This created a firestorm in Washington and escalated the tensions between the civilian and military leadership of that time period.
1: Let's begin with Afghanistan. We saw the leak of General McChrystal's review and and he concluded that the United States has about 12 months to reverse Taliban momentum and that without new troops, the the strategy laid out by the president is likely to fail. Now you've got your commanding general on the ground who's given you this report. He's said the troops, more troops are necessary or a risk failure. That report has been endorsed by the head of central command, David Petraeus. Admiral Mullen, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, went to Congress and said we probably need more troops. Yet the president is saying that we need to think about the strategy right now. And it really creates the impression of a rift between the civilian leadership, the U.S. Secretary of Defense, the president and the uniformed military.
2: You and your team also began making a series of recommendations that called for an increase in troops. And there's a widespread perception that your team boxed in President Obama and forced him to commit to more troops. What happened from yeah, your perspective?
1: Yeah. Yeah. First, you got to go back. Uh... And the answer is, I get that perspective. And were I President Obama? That's probably a rational conclusion, although I watched this build up and it it wasn't intentional at all. It started back in the fall or late summer of 2008 when President George W. Bush was still in office. And General McKiernan, my predecessor in Afghanistan, asked for 34,000 more troops. He had done an analysis and it was about a doubling of the force. So it was big. He needed it them in time to support securing the Afghan elections in the spring. Well, that request was taken in on the joint staff right after I arrived. And uh, I was the director of the joint staff now. And the decision was made not to fill it, to sort of look at it, but wait until after the election, the presidential election in the U.S. And so several months passed, then the election occurred. And then the decision was made not to do it during the interim don't let the outgoing president george w bush make a decision that would tie president obama's hands so it was now pushed about five months and so president obama is inaugurated january 20th and then literally like the next day he is presented with a request for more troops and of course new president who's been in his staff, his team too, they've been reading about Vietnam, the last thing that he had campaigned on the idea that Iraq, we needed to get out of, but Afghanistan was the necessary war. And that was his word, not ours. So he'd sort of committed to Afghanistan and said, we're getting out of Iraq. And now he gets told you need to send a lot more troops to Afghanistan. And I don't think that had been in his mind or his team's mind. And they go, whoa, stop we need time to look at this. And then they're told, well, you don't have time because we got to get them there for the election. Now the department of defense wasn't trying to, to jam them, but if you're a new team there, it's right for them to go, Whoa, don't, don't try to pull a power play on us. We're going to take our time, get it right. So this interface goes back and forth. I wasn't personally involved, but it's director on the George staff. I'm, I'm perfectly involved. And then some things happen, which really undermine confidence. So for example, They were told we need thirty four thousand troops and the people in the White House came back and said, well, how many brigades do you need? And I think the answer was four brigades. And they said, well, how many people in a brigade? And I think the answer they gave them was like three thousand people. So somebody took a cocktail napkin out and said, "Okay, three thousand times four, that's twelve thousand people. You're asking for thirty four. What's up with that? And then they got the answer, well, the rest are enablers. And then you go, well, what's an enabler? And, you know, it's kind of like, well, you wouldn't understand because we military people understand. And if you're in the White House going, hey, wait a minute, don't tell me what I don't understand. You don't understand troop numbers. Tell me what you want. Be specific. And so there was a back and forth, The the military trying to give a right, clean answer the White House being skeptical, naturally, but, you know, and so this distrust starts to grow. And the problem is people on both sides are good people trying to get a good outcome. There's no there's no B.S. going on, at least that I saw. But you start this mistrust. And then President Obama approved some of them, I think, in March. And he says and some of them got to be trainers. And that was a little disingenuous because for political reasons, they decided to to color some of the troops a little differently than I think would have been completely straightforward. And this goes on and then uh, the decision is made to replace commanders and I'm sent in uh, June and I'm told to do this assessment. I go over thinking that we wouldn't ask for more troops. From my times there before I was convinced the first thing we needed to do was change the strategy. We needed to change how we were fighting the war, the mindset and all these things, get reorganized. That was pretty clear to me. But I was told by the SECDEF to do an assessment. Don't ask for anything till I've done it. Well, I get there. We start this assessment. And during the period I'm there, back in D.C., politics are heating up about Afghanistan. And I'm not tied into that, interestingly. Um, And people are starting to question, should we be in Afghanistan at all? so in the process of doing the assessment my team they do some really detailed war gamings they do computer simulations they do all this stuff and then they present me we need forty thousand more troops and i said whoa that's not going to be popular and they took me through it i really put them through the scrutiny to convince me and when i came to the conclusion yeah that's right that's what uh we need as a bridge So, we could get enough security to grow the Afghan forces. That's what we do. So, the bottom line was I did the assessment after the assessment, right after we submit this requirement for 40,000 more troops. And that's where this mythology of the big power play came, you know, trying to force them that I was Westmoreland. And, you know, you could put names to, to people trying to do this. All I was trying to do was execute the mission as I understood the president had given me. And we extrapolated that and we presented that to them for their approval. But, but you could understand where they're saying, wait a minute, we got Department of Defense pushing hard. These iconic military leaders, Bob Gates from the previous administration holdover as Sect F, had supported the surge. Then you have Admiral Mullen, strong chairman, sort of the iconic Dave Petraeus as the CENTCOM commander, and me, the former counterterrorist. So you've got this unique set of personalities that I imagine you could, you know, step up and say, well, these people are linked arms. But that wasn't the truth. That's not what would happen. We were not linked arms. We were not doing this. We didn't want to ask for more troops. We were just convinced that militarily we had to have them to do what we were doing. But it started. And and this is what's so dangerous about civilian military relations when they are not close it's almost like the difference between the political parties now. When you can't have conversations about a lot of civil things, just normal uh, topics of life, you don't get together, you don't socialize, whatever. When you're at the table for really tough issues, it's even harder.
0: On the topic of the 2009 troop increase, there's a widespread perception out there that the military always wants more troops, as in They're always lobbying the government for more troops or more money, or more supplies, almost like a special interest group. Could you uh, speak to the validity of that and whether you think that's that's a false stereotype or if there's some truth to that? Yeah, I think there's some truth to that.
1: And it's it's not because the military are empire builders, it's because the military are naturally conservative, not politically conservative. But conservative, if if I were to give you a mission, Thomas, you wouldn't want to fail. And so you would want to have all the force you needed to give a high probability of success because you've been told that the mission is important and whatnot. So you would naturally try to mitigate the risk as low as you could, which often equates to to more troops. So as a consequence, there's a natural tendency, I think, for military leaders to want more. Um, I thought a lot about that because I'd been really, I read piles on Vietnam. I, I was really interested in when I was young, cause my father and brother were there and I studied French Indochina and also I had been very interested in counterinsurgency, i had been very interested in what had caused the, the mistakes in Vietnam and the gradual escalation. So I think that we've always got to watch ourselves really carefully on that. I did a lot of soul searching on that 40,000 troops for Afghanistan. And I, I concluded, but interestingly enough, I had a conversation with a friend of mine the other day and, you know, I said, if I'd been politically smarter in the summer of 2009, I would have done the assessment. I would have said, the numbers say we need 40,000 more troops and I'm not going to ask for any. And I would tell them that's what the assessment says, but I'm not going to ask for any. We'll try to do it without them. Now, what that would have done is it would have put me in one of these positions where, Hey, I'm doing my best here. You know, the numbers say we need more, but, but I'm not asking for more. I'm not recommending more. We'll, we'll do our best. That sort of thing It would have saved me from a lot of political scrutiny and whatnot, but the data, the studies, the military professionals I'm working with, they're saying, no. History, and we were using the histories of counterinsurgencies. We're using all this stuff, modeling. And they're saying, no, if we don't get the right force ratio in key areas, this historically doesn't work. Um, it would have been a shrewder move not to ask for any, but to give that data, that analysis to the senior leadership. But I'm not sure it would have been as, as intellectually honest as. Sam Huntington would want me to be (laughs) because Sam Huntington wants you to measure and then tell him how long it is and what you need. Um, and, and interestingly enough, I smiled Nick when you brought it up because I had met Sam Huntington when I was at Harvard and, uh, he had written Clash of Civilizations at that point and whatnot, and he was sort of an icon, but I kept telling my staff in Afghanistan, we don't own this war. This is not our war. We are technicians. We are going to try to do the Sam Huntington model here. They're telling us what they want done, and we're going to tell them what our calculations say is needed. But you find out even that doesn't work Mm -hmm. because those requests for troops became my requests for troops. They weren't the result of analysis. Nobody want to hear that. People just wanted to go, Stan McChrystal wants more troops.
2: As China's role grows greater on the global stage, you want to stay up to date on the issues most pressing to China, both domestically and internationally. Check out the Just China podcast for in-depth analysis on recent headlines and investigative reports on Chinese matters that affect our globalized world. We are Just China. Find us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you enjoy your podcast listening.
0: The environment of mistrust between General McChrystal's team and President Obama's team lingered. The tensions reached a breaking point on June 23, 2009.
1: The big showdown at the White House between President Obama and General Stanley McChrystal, the U.S. commander in Afghanistan. CBS News Chief White House Correspondent Chip Reed has the latest on that. Good morning, Chip. Well, good morning, Harry.
0: General McChrystal has apologized for his comments in that Rolling Stone magazine article, and he said he used poor judgment. But that may not be enough to save his job. After an overnight flight from Afghanistan to D.C., General McChrystal headed to the White House to meet with President Obama. A little while later, the president appeared in the Rose Garden, flanked by Vice President Biden, Secretary Gates, Admiral Mullen, and General Dave Petraeus. Today
1: I accepted General Stanley McChrystal's resignation as commander of the International Security Assistance Force in Afghanistan. I did so with considerable regret, but also with certainty that it is the right thing for our mission in Afghanistan, for our military,
0: and for our country. Back to the interview. We recently got to
2: look at a syllabus for a U.S. Naval War College elective on civil military relations, and the professors who teach that course actually spend a whole week looking at your relationship with the Obama administration and, in particular, the circumstances of your dismissal. Scholars even compare it to Truman's firing of General MacArthur during the Korean War. Since people are already studying those events and drawing their own conclusions, what lessons do you want future military leaders to learn from those events?
1: Yeah. You know, if you compare it to MacArthur and Truman, I, I think that's an incorrect comparison. Mm. I know they want to do that. I'm not the towering personality MacArthur was, you know, and there was none of the the kinds of friction between me and President Obama that there was between General MacArthur and President Truman. So that comparisons, apples and oranges, People people want to make it. Here's what I do draw out of it though. On a very tactical level, what happened was people were not doing much to support the war effort in terms of information. So I felt like in Afghanistan, we had to do things on the information warfare side, do a lot of press that I would rather not have done. But it wasn't being done in D.C. in support of it. You know, they were trying to keep arm's length. So we were trying to to build confidence on the part of people. So I was doing more press than I thought. The story that came out in the Rolling Stone was completely unexpected. It was supposed to be sort of a puff piece on the command team. We got that wrong, we didn't bet the guy. Uh, I don't think his portrayal was accurate or fair. But separate from that, even if it is or isn't, what happened was this very negative report comes out that alleges that we are at least dismissive of senior leadership. And that blows up and that causes an embarrassment for uh, the president. And it's my job not to cause an embarrassment for the president. So I didn't think we'd done anything, but it's my job to take responsibility. So I had no hesitation doing that. My final meeting with uh, President Obama was civil, as all my interactions had been before and since, because we put problem on on his plate that he shouldn't have been stuck with. So he was a bit boxed there in that particular instance. So Sort of separate that. But more broadly, the the civil military part wasn't as comfortable as it should have been. I don't think the interaction was deep enough and often enough. I asked a number of times to have a one-on-one with President Obama so I could lay out my strategy. Not so that he uh, would necessarily think the strategy was perfect, although it's his strategy. But he has to understand if he's comfortable with me. He has to understand if the person representing him there. And there was a lot of reasons that didn't happen, but I disagreed with him. I thought that that should have been forced to uh, to make happen. This was still a relatively new administration. And to be honest, when you try to deal with it, you think you're dealing with this unified group. They're not. They were a bunch of personalities all jousting for position in the White House. And so you'd get different answers, different perspectives. You could see things going on, which that makes it natural, but it makes it much more difficult. Plus, I'm trying to do it from thousands of miles away. I'm doing it largely by video teleconference. So I think what we need to step back and say is. If we think that a team that's going to prosecute a war, which starts with the president and includes the vice president, secretary of defense, secretary of state, you know, the key players, if they've got to make a series of tough decisions and actions, they need to be a team. Companies are companies spend a lot to build teams, sports teams spend millions of dollars, not just training the skills of the players, but bringing team cohesion. The U.S. government does nothing. We take a bunch of big personalities, big egos, throw them into an incredibly difficult situation, and we expect this thing to work like a Swiss watch. And that's not my uh, experience. And so, we ought to relook that. We ought to be respectful of the difficulty and complexity of the tasks like this, and we ought to figure out ways to to help the government become more effective at doing it.
0: In the Aftermath of the Rolling Stone article that came out, how did you process the military's relationship with the press and with the media? How important is it, do you think, for the military to be transparent with the press, and how should that relationship work?
1: Yeah, it is naturally going to be in tension, just like the press's relationship with government. That is their job. They have to be in tension. I remember in... uh, the spring of 2003 with the initial invasion of Iraq. I was in the Pentagon at the time, and we did that in and reporters went with the American forces for the invasion of Iraq. And they quickly became absolutely co-opted by the US military. When you ride in the back of an armored vehicle with a bunch of privates, you fall in love with them. And so they literally lost their ability to be unbiased observers. And they kind of knew that they, after the fact, At first, they they sort of celebrated it. Then after the fact, they said, wow, we we went too far. There has to be attention. They have to be the people always looking under the the rocks. And and so you're not going to be buddies with them, and you shouldn't try to be. My experience really goes back to the tail end of Vietnam when the American military came out of Vietnam with this great mistrust of the press, almost this idea that, the press was the reason we didn't win. Now that's not the reason we didn't win, but there's a certain percentage of the military that that drew that conclusion. And most of the military drew the first conclusion was stay away from the press, literally just stay as far away as you can, say nothing. And then they realized that wouldn't work. And then we went through an era where we said, we'll manage the press. We'll get really good at managing them. We'll teach people press skills. We'll bring the press in, we'll make them our friends and we'll, we'll get the coverage we want. And that's not true either. We went through that of in the 90s. Th- that's not realistic either. Uh, I think that the best, interestingly enough, the best view of the press came out of a quote from Dave Petraeus one day. We were in a meeting in Baghdad, and one of his guys, staff officers, came in and was complaining. He said that the press is not fair to us. You know, we opened up a kindergarten this week in Baghdad for young Iraqi kids and the press won't cover it. All they want to cover is the 14 car bombs. And, and Petraeus just stopped him. He said, Hey, as long as 14 car bombs are going off, that is the story. What we have to do is change that reality and then hope that they cover things honestly and, and accurately going forward. And that was a pretty, at that point, Dave was pretty seasoned interlocutor with the press. So, I think that what I drew from the Rolling Stone is the first thing I would not say stay away from the press. Don't extrapolate what that writer did as being indicative of what every writer is going to do. However, always go into every press interaction in a mature, realistic way, understanding what their role is, understanding what you're trying to do. And transparency is usually better than not. You know, I'm not saying you got to tell everybody everything all the time, but I'm saying that I I told a lot of people, don't draw the conclusion from what happened to me that we shouldn't interact with the press. Draw the conclusion as we could have done that interaction better.
2: Mm-hmm. On that note about the press, recently you've gained some attention for your criticism of President Trump and his response to you, there's been a lot of debate in the civil community about the role of retired officers in politics. Some scholars, like retired Admiral Mike Mullen, say that they should be extremely careful about what they say, because speaking out can politicize the military. And others simply argue that retired officers are now civilians, and they're free to exercise their First Amendment right as they see fit. Where do you place yourself on that spectrum?
1: Yeah, much closer to Mike Mullen. I think that retired officers have to be very, very careful about it. And we do, because everything we do casts a shadow on the active force. So if a retired officer gets out and goes very political, people in government look at all the active duty and they start to wonder, what's that person's political leanings? What do they think? Where are they going? And then you, you can start to have either a view of the officer corps politicized Or even worse, the officer corps starts to become politicized. And that's that would be just a a huge problem uh, for the nation. So I'm much closer to where Mike Mullen is. I was very disturbed by the 2016 election campaign, you know, where people got political and whatnot. I spoke out uh, about President Trump this time after a lot of soul searching on it. And as you notice, I didn't speak about his policies. I didn't speak about his politics. What I what I concluded and I, as I say, I spent a long time agonizing over this was we had crossed a line. Um, The president had started not only attacking people like Jim Mattis and others, and it's okay to criticize certain people. I thought that had gone way out of line. And then when he visited troops in Iraq and. He basically broke faith with young troops because young troops don't know better. And if a politician or leader goes out and gives heavy, heavily politicized things, he's breaking the not just the norm, but he's violating the trust that people have in that relationship. It's almost like the sexual predator thing of superior subordinate. And I was hugely bothered uh, by his actions there. So my problem with President Trump are around the basic values that he brings to the job. I mean, his personal values in the rest of his life are his personal issue. I mean, there's personal business. How they affect the job as commander-in-chief in the presidency do matter. They matter a lot. I see it with allies and whatnot. And my worry is my silence, I was afraid was going to be characterized as agreement with what he's doing. And I don't agree with that part of it. Again, I separate it from the policies or politics. But but I think we have crossed a line, this is abnormal times to me. And at that point, I think retired officers are in a different role, or my comments, I put them in a different role. That may be me rationalizing, but I feel uh, pretty strongly about that.
0: On that issue of kind of how your silence would or wouldn't be characterized, I guess a lot of people worry that speaking out can also just be characterized as a partisan attack because we live in such a hyper-politicized environment. People in the general public reading this story, you know, whatever, on ABC News aren't going to allow for that much nuance in the explanation. They're just going to see General McChrystal speaks out. He's against the president.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's the danger of this. We're not in a nuanced environment. Most people aren't listening to podcasts. They're they're getting really short snippets from from one side or the other. And so there's a great danger there. At the same time, you got to look yourself in the mirror. You know, we have hit a certain point and you got to look yourself in the mirror. And I'm not drawing an analogy between Donald Trump and Adolf Hitler or between Saddam Hussein and Donald Trump. But I am asking when militaries start to go along and they it's fine to be loyal to the government. It's even fine to be loyal and you should be loyal to the leadership of that. But when that causes you to cross lines, moral lines, values, ethics and whatnot, we're in a different place. And you can find yourself crossing those lines bit by bit, not with one sudden long jump. And I think we need to remind ourselves what our values are.
2: One final question for you, sir, before you go. Many of our classmates here at the Harris School of Public Policy will go into careers that aren't directly related to national security. What do you want them to know about the military?
1: Yeah, a lot more than they do. um, Because we have separated the military and whatnot. And the military's actually enjoyed that to a degree. And I'm not saying on purpose because people don't understand this. And so they hold the military in this exalted reverence and they think that we're all, you know, incredible warriors and also brave and selfless and all this kind of stuff. And, and that's part of that's true. And part of that isn't true. Uh, We're another big organization that's got bureaucracy. We've got human beings that are good, that are bad. We've got all of that stuff and I want them to understand that because it, the military should be a reflection of society. You know, the good, the bad of society, not separate from society, not better than society. Uh, and so it's really important that they understand that they feel not in all of the military, they feel like owners of the military. They feel like stockholders of the military and they're interested. Sometimes they should give hard scrutiny to us. They should call us on things, and, and I think that's what I want civilians to do, not just automatically thank us for our service and assume that we got it all right.
0: You've written before a little bit about the idea of national service, the service year program. How, how, to what extent do you think that policy solution could kind of solve some of these problems?
1: I think it would be the single biggest thing we could do to start to change culturally that issue. Not just the military, it would help with the civil military divide, but it would help with the divisions in our society, because if if everybody had to go out and pick up trash or or work with young people or work with old people or do anything for a year of their life, and they had to do it with people not from their zip code, you know, you you have a different attitude toward things you've had to invest in. And I think it would change the way we think fundamentally. It also would do a lot of other second third order things. People vote at three times the rate if they've done national service. You'd keep a lot of people out of prison. You just you would create a different mindset. Mm-hmm. And that wouldn't be a bad thing.
0: Sir, we really appreciate you taking the time to join us and we really appreciate all your thoughts and your service as well.
1: Well, thank you guys for all you're doing and best of luck. Thank you, sir. Take care.
2: Thanks for joining us for this episode of Thank You For Your Service. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at tyfys underscore podcast. And don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. So you'll get our next episode as soon as it's released.
0: Thank You For Your Service is produced by Haz Yano, Ashwarya Kumar, and Mary Martha McClay. Our publisher is David Raban. Special thanks to Jess Blankshane, Jim Golby, Morgan Wade, and David Axelrod for their help with this episode. This podcast is a production of the University of Chicago Public Policy Podcasts and is in no way intended to reflect the official positions of the Department of Defense or any other military entity. I'm Thomas Krasnation.
2: And I'm Nick Caruso. See you next time. Hi, this is Jason Zukas, the host of Have You Heard the UC3P News Quiz. Curious to know what our show's all about? Here, have a listen. Iceland has fielded a surprisingly successful team in recent World Cups. Iceland's coach, Heimar Halgrímsson, has a skill set not limited to just soccer, however. Which of these things does he not do on the side? <laughs> a. work part-time as a dentist. B, dress up as an Icelandic troll during Christmas time. Oh boy, that's or C, sell car insurance to friends and family. Oh, man. I feel like he definitely
0: does the troll thing. <laughs> like, I'm pretty sure. I wouldn't be shook if he was a dentist. <laughs> I'm going to go with car insurance. That's correct. He does not
2: <laughs> do that. If you enjoyed that clip, come check out all of our episodes by searching for Have You Heard? UC3P on your preferred podcast platform or join one of our upcoming live shows. Just go to facebook.com slash HYHNewsquiz for more info on our next show. See you there.